What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to the Pomp Podcast, simply the best podcast out there. Now let's kick this thing off. Darius Dale is the founder and chief executive officer at 42 Macro LLC, an online financial media company specializing in macro risk management. He was previously the managing director at Hedgeye Risk Management. In this conversation, we discuss the macro economy, inflation, employment, wealth inequality, wage growth, monetary policy, and Bitcoin. I really enjoyed this conversation with Darius, and I hope you do as well. Before we get into this episode, though, I want to quickly talk about our sponsors. First up is Miami Coin. As you may have heard, we just had Miami Mayor Francis Suarez on the show to talk all things Miami, including his excitement for a project that's really caught my attention, Miami Coin. It is the first token to be released by CityCoin's community-driven initiative built on top of Bitcoin. CityCoin's aims to give people around the world a new way to support their favorite cities. In short, the city of Miami was given around $7 million in counting by private citizens to improve the city with no strings attached. A city government embracing Bitcoin and crypto instead of fighting it with a historic event. Do you want to get involved? Follow at MineCityCoins on Twitter to stay up to date with the project and chat. CityCoins.co to join the community discord and contribute to the movement. Again, at MineCityCoins or CityCoins.co. Go check them out and let me know what you think. Next up is Cosmos. They're building the internet of blockchains, marking a new era of interoperability, scalability, and usability. The free flow of assets and data between blockchains with bridges to Ethereum and Bitcoin will unleash the potential of DeFi, NFTs, and much more. Dive into Cosmos at cosmos.network slash pomp. Again, cosmos.network slash pomp. The internet of blockchains, marking a new era of interoperability, scalability, and usability. Last but not least is Matrix Pork. Have you lost your way in this low-yield environment while searching for a better store of value to beat inflation? Look no further. Invest with Matrix Pork to get more from your crypto, with the potential for up to 200% annualized yields on certain products. Matrix Port is Asia's fastest growing digital asset platform founded by crypto veterans. With $10 billion in assets under management and custody, Matrix Port offers one stop crypto financial solutions, including fixed income, DeFi in one click, structured products, cactus custody, spot OTC, and lending. You can earn a high yield with a dual currency product or opt for a lucrative potential of new product. If you hold crypto and are actively looking to do more with your precious assets, then this app is one you don't want to miss. Go download the Matrixport app today or go to matrixport.com. Again, you can go to the app store and download the Matrixport app or you can go to matrixport.com. All right, let's get into this episode with Darius. I hope you guys enjoy this one. Anthony Pompliano runs Pomp Investments. All views of him and the guests on his podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Pomp Investments. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp or his guests as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his personal opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Can we start with uh, your background first? I see the uh, the Yale helmet back there. So tell us just a little bit about what you did before you started to uh, uh, started 42 Macro. Yeah, I guess I, I crushed skulls at Yale. <laughs> that's probably the first. Uh, that's probably the first thing that got me on the map. Uh, I uh, ran uh, macroeconomic research at uh, this firm called Hedge Iris Management, very large uh, independent research provider uh, based in Connecticut. Um, and then I left this year to start my own. Uh, project, uh, you know, we, what we really want to do is sort of help investors across the entire, uh, you know, asset allocation spectrum and level of sophistication, kind of get empowered with the same sort of thought processes and tools uh, that you know professional investors are using to manage their overall portfolio risk. 
Got it. And so when we think about your framework for evaluating the macro economy and then actually investing, is there a certain way that you describe what that framework is? Yeah, it's regime segmentation. Um, I'd what say the popular, hell does that popular. mean? Yeah, well, it means putting things in categories that allows you to sort of think really quickly about what the ultimate uh, sort of impact is whenever you go into or from a different regime. Um, I'd say the most popular investor, I'm sure you guys all know who Ray Dalio is. He probably made that concept of regime segmentation quite famous. Um, I did some a lot of research at Hedgeye um, to make it even more famous. And ultimately, uh, we're, we're using a, a similar framework here at 42 Macro, although it's a little bit different in terms of the variables we use. Uh, what we're ultimately trying to identify is, is the economy going into one of those four states, Goldilocks, inflation, stagflation or deflation? And if so, what's the likely response and path of asset markets as a function of that? OK, so let's walk through these four different uh, kind of regimes. So Goldilocks, what exactly does that mean? Yeah, that's, so that's when growth is accelerating and inflation is decelerating. That's the most favorable uh, at sort of a macroeconomic regime for stocks, for credit, for crypto. Uh, this is where Bitcoin, Ethereum, all the sort of everything in the crypto space tends to have its outsized excess performance. Um, you go cl clockwise on this chart to reflation. Uh, that's where growth and accelerating simultaneously. Inflation is on the x-axis, growth on the y-axis. And that tends to be where, you know, you still have positive risk on performance. You know, you really get a commodities involved. And, but you also tend to start to see real negative returns uh, in fixed income, particularly anything with duration risk, which is uh, very uh, sensitive to interest rates. Um, right now, uh, you go continuing on clockwise, you have inflation or what, you know, what most people call stagflation. We call it inflation because G grid sounds better than GRSD. Uh, GRSD sounds like a disease or something. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, you know, this is this is when you cross the uh, horizontal axis. That's when uh, things start getting risk off. That's when equities and credit start to wobble. I have uh, volatility. That's when fixed income starts to outperform. And so really and but uh, the, the kind of the key differentiator as it relates to Bitcoin and crypto is is when you're in that bottom right quadrant, uh, you tend to find that crypto can outperform and can work relative to equities and credit. Whereas uh, when you're in the bottom left quadrant, you tend to have all things going down simultaneously. Got it. And so when we start thinking about where we are right now, how do you describe which one of these regimes we're in? Yeah. So uh, if you go to that uh, that, that next uh, slide, the, the big table with all the different regimes. Uh, so we, we run very sophisticated models, uh, econometric tools to forecast where the growth and inflation rates are for any account for all the major economies in the world. And ultimately, what we're trying to do is, is track inflection points in those cycles. Um, so we're kind of at a really critical juncture here in Q4 where, you know, the conditional probability of realizing each of those regimes, particularly stagflation, is actually quite, quite wide. You know, you have a much more flat distribution of outcomes as opposed to a very narrow uh, and skinny distribution of outcomes that we've kind of um, experienced over the last 18 months, whether it be going from inflation in, in Q4 of 18 or 19 um, to deflation in the first quarter of last year, back to Goldilocks and then reflation. Now we're kind of in this jumbled mess, but ultimately we think that jumbled mess is going to resolve itself uh, positively with another reflation trade to end of the year. Got it. And so when we start fourth thinking- quarters, man. I fourth quarter, yesterday. right? Fourth quarter, you know. <laughs> At Yale, they were throwing up we fourth go. quarter when they were losing a buck now, I remember. Uh, so, <laughs> so let's talk about actual assets themselves, right? What we've basically saw was in uh, March of 2020, we saw a massive sell-off in asset prices. Government steps in uh, through fiscal monetary policy. They basically inflate assets to the moon. As we start to look towards the end of this year, uh, there's a lot of talk around, are they going to taper? Are they not? Before 
before we get to kind of a conclusion on what you think is going to happen there, what are the factors that play into that decision that you're watching? Is it things around inflation? Is it things around unemployment? Is it things around job growth on a month to month basis? Like what are the data points that you look at that you ultimately think feed into they're going to taper or they're not? Yeah. So I, it's, it's to me, it's number one, two and three of the labor market dynamics, um, whether or not they're going to taper. I would argue that they're going to taper. Um, in terms of their guide, their forward guidance from the most recent uh, FOMC meeting, they almost they basically just said, eh, "I don't really care what happens. We're going to taper in November." Now, the speed of with of the tapering program and whether or not it's a very it's a successive program, i.e., going from start to finish without any interruption, um, that is yet to be determined. Uh, but as it relates to sort of their uh, accomplishing some of their goals on uh, substantial further progress in the labor market, uh, they see they feel like they've met those goals, particularly looking at uh, the level of total employment. Uh, argue that there's still a lot of long ways to go. It's a different conversation, but um, on inflation, very clearly achieved uh, substantial further progress on that front as well. And so it looks like that we're going to have liftoff in Q4. But again, the taper is not the, the taper is the sideshow. What markets really care about is, okay, once we get done with this tapering process, what is the likelihood that we see interest rate hikes um, over the near term, medium term, long term? What's that, what's that, the shape of that curve look like? And I think that's what the market's really wrestling with and trying to digest and hear you for. Got it. And so when you start to look at inflation right now, we're over 5% on a CPI basis, over 4% core. Uh, these are some of the highest levels we've seen, you know, CPI numbers, I think 13 years, uh, core yeah. like 30 years. Yeah. What exactly is driving that in your opinion? Is that supply chain? Is that monetary fiscal policy stuff? Is it a combination? It seems like everyone's got an opinion, but nobody actually knows. Yeah, no, no. So we, I mean, we do a, a tremendous amount of work at 42 Macro unpacking all these dynamics. I sent you a bunch of these charts out of the deck. Um, I don't know if I sent you the supply chain charts, but so it's it's a combination of factors, right? You have supply chains, you know, where the, you know, there's different uh, data sets that we look at to identify that, whether it would be the Baltic Dry Index, the supplier delivery time indices within the ISM services and paid uh, ISM services and manufacturing indices. They're all continuing to suggest supply chains on the tradable goods side is uh, supply chain headwinds continue. Um, in terms of the supply chain dynamics on the services side, we're actually starting to see that um, you know pick up. You go back to Friday's jobs report. Um, we saw the uh, work, the labor force participation rate for prime working age adults, you know, people who are 24 to uh, 25 to 54 years old, that actually ticked down 20 basis points. Um, so people who should be in the labor force should be working, you know, at a very high rate, actually are now moving in the wrong direction. Partially likely driven by the Delta variant, but who knows if it's if it is a Delta variant, we'll have to see on the next data point. The reason I highlight that is because that, in my opinion, catalyzed the very sharp acceleration in average weekly earnings. We're tracking just shy of 6% on that metric, which is obviously extremely high relative to, to the recent past. And if you know we continue to see uh, that supply-demand mismatch develop in the, in the services part of the economy, we're going to see more wage inflation, and that is a very different dynamic. Uh, than most people have had to deal with in the last 20, 30 years. One of the interesting charts that you had sent me was just how much cash investors have on hand right now. It's basically a record amount of cash. What's driving slide that? 40. Yeah, so slide 40. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Great chart. And so this, the, the slide 40 and 41 kind of really go hand in hand. Uh, this blue line just shows the amount of money market, uh, amount of assets in money market funds. That's about four and a half trillion. What's interesting about this is typically when there's a lot of cash on the sideline, it's because stocks have blown up and people have rushed, to, rushed for the exits. This is very anomalous relative to you know, any, any pass of this time series. What it's telling you is that people are really concerned about bonds. Uh, they don't want to buy bonds, the long, you know, long-term treasuries with the 10-foot pole because they're very concerned about inflation. So they're looking for resolution on the inflation front, i.e. 
is inflation going to be transitory? Is it going to be uh, persistent from a levels perspective? I happen to think it's both rate of change transitory. It's going to be rate of change or, or sorry, rate of change terms. It's heading down over the next 12 months. But from a levels perspective, it's going to bottom at a, at a rate that's much higher than we're used to having inflation bottom uh, in this economy. And that, to me, is a big difference and part of the reason why you're seeing all this cash on the sidelines. But I say that to say this. Look at the next chart, slide 41. To me, slide 41 is partially the reason why uh, we anticipate there is going to be a recovery, a reflation trade uh, here in, in Q4. And more importantly, this is probably why you're going to see Bitcoin, Ethereum, and, and the like go through the moon uh, here in Q4. Everyone's so hyper-concerned about sort of all these different dynamics, whether it be the debt ceiling, fiscal policy, all that nonsense going on down in D.C. Um, you have earnings, corporate earnings, and, and all the supply chain dynamics that are kind of uh, take, forcing people, investors, to take down their expectations for earnings growth. But the reality is the thing that's gotten the market to this point hasn't slowed down yet. Right? Look at the blue line in this chart shows the Fed balance sheet minus the change in the Treasury general account. That's, a, that's our, a rough approximation for the amount of net liquidity being pumped in asset markets. And as long as that blue line's going up, you have to tell me a really, really interesting story about why the red line has to go down a lot. We would expect the blue line to finally peak out sometime in Q1 or Q2 of next year. You know, once the Treasury Department really starts to borrow uh, a debt in size again, they've kind of been nowhere to be found all year, and that's been very supportive for asset markets. But ultimately, once you know we get to the other side of the debt ceiling, we get the budget resolution passed, and we have much more clarity on the fiscal policy front, you're going to start to see the Treasury uh, take up its cash balance and really start to tap public markets. But again, that to me is a, a, at the earliest three months away, probably four or five months away. If we go to slide 43, you've got these uh, slides on inflation and then disinflation. So first, let's start with kind of the secular view around inflation um, and kind of how you're actually looking at this, on, uh, both secular and cyclical. And then we'll talk about what those macro structures around disinflation are. Yeah, great question, man. Absolutely. So on slide 43, we just show our inflation projections, both on a long-term basis in terms of contextualizing the time series. That's on the left. And then we zoom in for the last you know, kind of five years on the right uh, with our cyclical view on inflation. As I mentioned, our models are pointing to disinflation over the intermediate term. Now, over the next couple of months, you could see flat to up series. If you, you know zoom all the way in, you're going to see some flat to up data, uh, data, likely to see some flat to up inflation prints here in Q4. But the reality is, you know, you go a year from now, we're talking about inflation that's 100, 200 basis points lower from a headline perspective. However, if you look at the, you know, kind of draw a line at the, the tail end of that chart on the right and draw a line all the way through the chart on the left and you say, hey, if we bottom here, that's much higher than where we used to bottom um, in terms of the most recent past. Right. Like inflation. And I'm going to get super academic and wonky on you. I, I still have a few brain cells left from my, from my gridiron days. But, you know, the stationary mean of this time series is somewhere around one and a half percent. That's kind of where it oscillates around. We're talking about the stationary mean of the CPI time series starting to oscillate around two, two and a half percent. That is a big change. And one of the reasons why you're seeing all that cash on the sidelines in terms of uh, investors not really wanting bonds. But ultimately, that cash has to find a home. No one's going to sit in cash if we're talking about inflation, the stationary mean of inflation transposing itself higher by 100 basis points. That cash either has to find a home in cryptocurrency, has to find a home in commodities, which I would argue is, is accelerating to the upside, and or it has to find a home in equities and credit. Um, and so to me, I think those dynamics really do support uh, recovery, like reflation type trade here in Q4. But ultimately, I, I do believe the net liquidity dynamics will 
put an end to that sometime in the first part of next year. So before we talk about disinflation real quick, what I want to kind of outline for people is the situation we have right now is we've got higher levels of inflation. When the rate of change of inflation comes down, it won't be at 5%, somewhere two, two and a half percent, which is much higher than it previously had been. People are sitting with cash because they don't want to buy the bonds because of their worry about the inflation. And so your argument is if we have that persistent level of inflation, people aren't going to sit in cash forever. They're going to eventually have to deploy the cash. When they deploy the cash, they basically are going to look at asset prices. They've got commodities, they've got equity, mm-hmm. they've got credit, and they've got crypto uh, or Bitcoin. Yep. And Real so the good. argument then becomes, how can they deploy this money with the best risk return uh, kind of uh, profile and build a portfolio that allows them to take all that cash with that inflation that's just eroding it away and get it into these assets. When we look at what is slide 46 here, this idea that while all of that is going on that I just described, there's these like macro structures that are pushing disinflation. Uh, and yeah. this is demographic technology globalization. So explain what this is showing. Yeah, absolutely. So on that chart, you know, we are just showing, uh, go back one chart actually. Uh, so the, 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 the chart prior to that, yeah, exactly. So these are the secular drivers of disinflation. This is why inflation isn't going from 5% to 10%, right? These, all, these things haven't changed. The, the blue line shows the labor force participation rate. That's a proxy for demographics. The red line shows my, uh, the money velocity. Both are on lows, obviously, from a secular perspective. The black line shows globalization as it relates to our, the percentage of our imports and good, uh, goods and services that we import. It's obviously still quite elevated relative to you know the longer term time series, and then obviously one thing that's really accelerated in the in the in the pandemic is our use of, of digital technology and digitization of the economy. I mean, the blue line just shows the uh, as a proxy for that the Nasdaq 100 market cap as a pro- as a ratio to the Russell 3000 market cap. That's the broadest uh, measure of U.S. equities, and clearly we're at the highs there. So I'm obviously talking to you guys via Zoom. We're not you know in the same place. You know, there's a lot. Of, all those things are disinflationary. Same with the following chart that you were just on. The blue line in that chart is our proxy for an anopsony power in the economy. That's the S&P 100 index market cap as a ratio to the S&P 500. That's up and to the right. That means bigger companies are dominating incrementally relative to the smaller companies. And the red line in this chart just shows employee uh, comp as a ratio to CapEx. And that's obviously on the lows. So, you know, there's this conversation about wages in this country and the potential for wage price spiral. Um, which I think you do have to combat that conversation to some degree and say, hey, a lot of these dynamics that have kept not only kept inflation low over the last 10 to 20 years, but really, in my opinion, kind of taken the stationary mean down over the last kind of 30 years or so. These some of these dynamics are very much still intact. And so you have to get to a place where, OK, what is changing? To me, what is changing is the key uh, a, a debate about inflation right now. And to me, you go to slide 58 in that deck, 58 through 62, kind of walk through about what we see changing and how we think it'll likely impact inflation rates. This uh, is oh, this is wild. Hold, hold hold on a second, Darius. This is wild to me. Slide fifty eight. Look what, at our buddies. What you are saying is that the drivers of populism put the United States from a political risk standpoint the same as a emerging market. There is no yeah, no. developed nation United States when it comes to the political risk. So explain what is going on here. Yeah. So, I mean, just I mean, just without even explaining what the chart is signifying, just look at our homies. Like, look at the guys and gals we're hanging out with in this chart. It's not like France and Korea and Japan, like our our developed market homies. It's Russia and China, people who hack us on a regular basis in Chile and Mexico. Like this is it's 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 bonkers. So this the X axis on this chart shows the Gini coefficient. That's a measure of income dispersion. Higher is more unequal, uh, lower is more equal. And the Y axis in this chart shows unemployment rate. And so you think about 
unequal societies that are, you know, have high levels of unemployment, that tends to be where you get the highest amount of political risk uh, in the economy. And as a function of that, and, and sorry, what are the reasons for the location of our dot? The reason our dot is in that location is on slide 59. You know, so like the we've had all we've had a war against you know middle class and low not class uh, low middle income and lower income people in this in this society for the past kind of twenty plus years. The blue line in this chart shows employee compensation as a percent of uh, national income, and the red line just shows corporate profits as a percent of national income. And obviously, that was a long, healthy, stable relationship. It was cyclical, but it was pretty stable for you know kind of fifty years. And then over the last twenty years or so, it's kind of really reversed on its head and. You know, why has it reversed on its head? Well, there's kind of three big factors. One, obviously, globalization. China joined the WTO in, in 2001 was obviously a big factor there. Um, you have, obviously, the advent of technology and digitization in the economy. But I would think one of the, the least talked about factors is really kind of the, the explosion and the growth of the private equity industry um, and the industry consolidation we've seen as a function of that and, and all the M&A and, and, and associated with that. And so, really, we've gotten to the point in this chart where it's like it's just politically unfeasible not to address this, this situation. Obviously, we had you know Black Lives Matter. We had Black people protesting in the spring. We had angry white people protesting in January. And guess what? They're on both sides of the political aisle. It's not about Democrats or Republicans. It's about angry poor people. We've created a very large amount of angry poor people in America. And as much as we try to ignore that as people operating in and around Wall Street, the fact of the matter is, is they, they haven't gone anywhere. And so the in our and my, my sort of thesis on this is that if you go back to the next slide, is that's why we're panicking from a fiscal policy perspective, albeit less so than we were at the, at the onset of the pandemic, but we're certainly still pa uh, panicking. That next slide shows the, the scatter plot shows the x-axis is the current account uh, 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 surplus for deficit as a percent of GDP. The y-axis shows the uh, sovereign fiscal balance as a percent of GDP. And the reality is, is our dot is at the bottom left for a reason. Like we are panicking as a fiscal author fiscal authority in response to not just COVID, because COVID was an accelerant to some of these dynamics, right? Like COVID made poor people poor. It made people of color even more poor on a relative basis than they already were. And so it, it really was an accelerant. And so that's why we you see us drop our dot in this chart all the way down to the bottom left. Well, you know, kind of to round up this entire discussion, the next couple of the charts kind of just kind of get to the, the real heart of the matter, which is why I think the inflation rate is likely to be persistent over the long term. You go to slide 60, uh, 60 through 62, kind of just get to the real to answer the question really quickly, who's going to pay the bill? Uh, slide 61 says the foreigners aren't going to pay the damn bill. You go to slide 62, <laughs> it says, aha, no, yeah, go back up. So the, go back to 62. The blue line in this chart just shows the Fed's balance sheet is a percent of public debt outstanding. They have to pay the bill. And, and you think about the change in the Fed's composition over the next year or so, you know, we could have a different Fed head, although I don't think we we're going to. But you could have six new people on the FOMC board. All could be, you know, pretty uh, dovish on a relative basis to the, uh, the current composition of the board, although we will get two hawks at the margin. But, you know, this, this, this Fed could be very different over the next three to five years in terms of facilitating this lurching left of fiscal policy as a, as a function of not just COVID, but for some of these dynamics that have been building up, these vulnerabilities that have been building up for 20 years. All right. So talk to me about 42 macro, the clients that you serve first, because I want people to understand the perspective at which when you spend all day, you know, I was telling people that you're full of data, of charts, of graphs, et cetera. And you take all this, you basically basically synthesize it. And then you go and you talk to these clients about what they should be doing or how they should be thinking about these markets. So who exactly are those types of clients that you have? 
Yeah, no, it's anybody who likes making money and, and not losing. It. I, mean, <laughs> I, mean, I say that very succinctly. I mean, I talk to the, the biggest hedge funds and mutual funds in the world, the guys who run those funds. And I talk to guys who, you know, retire rich guys who just have, uh, you know, tons of money in their account. I mean, the reality is, you know, we created 42 Macro to democratize information. I believe in what you're doing. I believe in, in the democratization of information as the most important factor for, for narrowing the gap between the haves and haves not society. As you know, you know me for many years. I was very much a, a have not in this society. Plenty of people uh, would love that I continue to be a have not. But unfortunately, that, that's not going to be the case. And so we created 42 Macro to actually you know, democratize the processes and the tools, all this data that you're referring to, uh, to everybody. Whoever can afford our research can come by the research. You know, We're going to help you uh, construct thoughtful balanced portfolios uh, in the context of what we see uh, as the most probable outcomes from a macro risk management perspective. When you look at portfolios today, especially of younger people, what is the most common portfolio that you're seeing in terms of you're like, yep, they, you know, the tactical differences uh, aside, that seems to be like either the common portfolio or the portfolio that is best positioned from a structure standpoint for the macro environment we're in. Yeah, I, I would. That's a great question. And so, you know, I, I will I'll, I'll take I'll, I'll answer it in a slightly different way. You know, when I spend my time on, on in Zoom meetings and whatnot, it's usually with our, our you know highest tier of clients for obvious reasons. And so, you know, they tend to be hedge fund and mutual client uh, mutual fund uh, type investors. And the reality is there is a clear difference between, I would say, millennial investors, you know, portfolio managers who are kind of in our age range. Versus those who are in the you know kind of you know Gen X to to, to baby boomer uh, age range, there's just a lot more risk taking among uh, you know sort of folks like us. I think we all sort of came to we we came of age in a time where the market really didn't go down and it didn't pay to be a perma bear. I mean, there's a lot of people that are just from previous experience, you know, going back to the Gen Z baby boomers who've seen two fifty plus percent market declines in like twenty years, and so I think they you know there's a real you know, kind of, there's a perma bear community out there that increasingly will die and die go by the wayside. And I think they've been replaced by uh, investors who really understand all these monetary and fiscal dynamics that have gotten the market to this point and are likely to get the market to a different point uh, over the near future, over the long term. Talk to me about Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. How does that fit into all this? Yeah, great question. So uh, uh, you go to slide 104. Um, so we back tested everything that ticks in macro. If we can invest in it or, or, or if there's some, some way to get exposure to it, we back tested it within the context of those grids. And right now, we're actually long Bitcoin and Ethereum in our model portfolio construction as a function of sort of being in this in this kind of hybrid, what we call grid zero environment, whereby you know each of the the, the four grid regimes is reasonably probable over the next um, over the next few months. And so, understanding that Bitcoin, if you look at that back test, it sees it has 137% annualized monthly return whenever we're in inflation. That's stagflation. And so that's one of the exposures we've actually allocated to in the model portfolio construction to take advantage of the fact that, hey, you know, the, the economy may actually tip into stagflation here in Q4. And if we're, if we're wrong on our views on reflation and it actually is stagflation, you're going to have some exposure to, 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 to that downside risk with respect to uh, asset markets. And so Bitcoin, Ethereum, two of the best places you can be right now as it relates to pricing and stagflation. Matt gas, uranium, uh, those are other features in the portfolio construction as well. Uh, we're not all fully built, uh, tilted into stagflation, but we certainly think crypto plays a very important role in terms of protecting uh, investor portfolios to the upside of inflation and also to the downside in growth over the next few months. Talk about when you're looking at it in terms of that uh, protection to a portfolio uh, in both of those scenarios, 
what is the allocation size that you're seeing? Is this like half a percent, one percent type stuff? Is it five, ten percent, bigger, somewhere in between? Yeah. Uh, so I've, I've spent many a years uh, consulting uh, institutional investors on, on on portfolio construction and really position sizing. That's kind of like the final frontier of investing. There's no real right way to do it. There's wrong ways to do it for sure. I think licking your finger in the air is probably the worst way to do it. Um, but the reality is, I, I mean, I've tried uh, every, you know, mean variance optimization. I've tried it all. And the reality is nothing works. <laughs> nothing works ex ante. It always works ex post. And so I've actually just gone, I've gone straight with just uh, uh, equal weighted position sizes, but more importantly, controlling your uh, allocation to the themes. Um, I, if you do have the slide deck, if you have the slide deck, go to slide 23 you'll see sort of how we're balanced across the four different regimes and also have a decent cast position in the context of expecting a little bit more volatility in asset markets over the next kind of two to three weeks. I think earnings season could potentially be negative. Uh, we got a bunch of economic data this week that could be negative. It's PPI or CPI tomorrow, PPI Thursday, retail sales Friday, consumer confidence Friday. But it really, as you can see here, it's really just about allocating to each of the regimes. And right now we're in this hybrid grid zero portfolio construction where we're saying, saying hey, each of the four regimes is reasonably probable in terms of realizing that economically here in Q4, both in the U.S. economy and also abroad. And so we don't want to be tilted too far into any one regime. If, you, if we had this conversation in November of last year, that entire freaking circle would be lime green. It's like this is going to be the most historic inflation trade you've ever seen in your life. Um, I was on several programs like this saying that, screaming at the top of my lungs, saying, look, Bitcoin's probably going to 100000 by the spring. Now, we only got to 60,000, but I certainly think that's probably going to 100,000 by the end of this year. Um, and, I, and that's a, and you can you can write me down on that. I, I like I like timestamps. But the reality is that the, the size of each of those pie slices and the portfolio construction varies with respect to um, what's the actual probability of realizing that regime. And so right now, the probabilities are pretty balanced. So we're pretty balanced. But the next you know, the next time next time you have me on the program, it may be all dark blue or maybe all dark green. Who knows? When you think about Bitcoin specifically, you said 100K by the end of the year. Is that uh, a floor that you think will cross over or do you think that's more of like a market top uh, and that's how so that's like the highest you could see it going? No, no. I, I mean, this thing's I mean, pick your duration. It's going to keep going up, right? Like we know the supply, the supplies being halved at various intervals. So it's really just about not being the guy or gal who buys the top of the chart and has to hodl that for like three years. That's that's what you got to avoid in Bitcoin, right? Like that, you know. And so, um, you know, I've been following the stock to flow analysis uh, just like everybody else. You know, I don't pretend to, I don't purport to be an expert in Bitcoin. I purport to be an expert in understanding how the asset actually trades with respect to its own volatility and covariance and, and, and return characteristics as a function of the economic cycle. What's happening in the economy? That's what I'm an expert on. And in terms of using that expertise, um, I would say, hey, look, as long as we're in this period where we could either be in Goldilocks reflation or stagflation, or sorry, not you can be in, the rather each of those has a reasonably probable um, uh, probability for uh, being realized that you're going to have positive price momentum in Bitcoin. And that's exactly what we're seeing. That's exactly what we'd expect to continue to see through year end. Ultimately, the, 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 the sell signal on Bitcoin, it'll be when this sort of net liquidity dynamic really starts to inflect or at least the forward outlook for it to start to inflect lower because what we've seen historically going back to 2017, heading into 2018, was that Bitcoin, you know, ahead of these big market moves, tends to be a leading indicator. Um, obviously, Bitcoin peaked, um, you know, in, in, in Q1 of last year prior to the stock market. You know, so there, there, there is some leading characteristics with respect to Bitcoin, and partially because it's more of a pure market, right? Like, Again, yeah, not a, I'm, you know, I'm certainly not a Bitcoin chiller. I, I think it's just as I think of Bitcoin the same way I think of all the other. Uh, they're like kids in the portfolio construction. 
you know, one kid sometimes work is, is acting up. So one, so one kid's out there winning awards sometimes and it, and it switches. The reality is, is understanding portfolio construction and where each of these, these children fit in, in that context is really the name of the game. Um, in my opinion. So I've got two of my brothers here with me. They're real excited to talk to you. What, uh, what questions you guys got? Darius, what's going uh, on, man? Good to see you. Uh, so my, my question revolves around your personal portfolio and you share what you want to share. Uh, but as someone who talks to more traditional institutional investors all day, I'm curious kind of how you think about uh, personal allocation within your portfolio. Do you own a bunch of equities, uh, a bunch of bonds, gold, or do you own a bunch of crypto and Bitcoin also? Uh, and how do you think, we have a lot of younger people that watch this show, how do you think younger people should be thinking about uh, Bitcoin and other cryptos as part of their portfolio? Yeah, so uh, the first answer is the slide 23 is my personal portfolio. And so, you know, I don't spend 16 hours a day working to, to arrive at these mathematical conclusions only to not use it for myself. That'd be the most preposterous activity on it. Uh, so, no, this is what my portfolio looks like um, at most, you know, most times. Obviously, I, I oscillate my cash position every once in a while because I'm a human being that needs to consume stuff. But generally speaking, uh, this is it. Um, in terms of, you know, how I would generally talk to younger investors about portfolio construction, Obviously, if you have more time to retirement, you can take more risk in your portfolio construction. That doesn't necessarily mean you need to always be taking the same amount of risk at every single interval. There are times, you know, specifically using like the last 12 months as an example, there are times where it pays to take a crap ton of risk. Uh, really not the last 12 months. I would argue kind of from, from May of last year through June of this year, that was probably the time to take as much risk as you possibly can. And even if you didn't get in in May of last year, you could have gotten in in November of last year and, and still made a crap ton of money. Now, this economic environment that we're talking about is not as obvious in terms of uh, you know perpetuating higher, uh, a very positive realized outcomes in equity and credit markets than you know let's say a broad reflation pie. Go back to that slide. If the pie was all dark green or all lime green, you you should be taking maximum risk. If the pie is mostly red or mostly dark blue, you should be taking a lot less risk. And that's what we're trying to help people with. I mean, you know, I, I can confuse people and lose a lot of people with, you know, volatility and covariance and conditional probability. And I certainly understand that's that's that discussion is for a more institutional audience. But the reality is, if you can't figure out uh, colors, you shouldn't be investing anyway. I think that's kind of the key takeaway. John, what do you got? Yeah, Darius, what's up? Thank you for what's doing this. Uh, 42 macro. Love it. <laughs> Love it. Um, <laughs> I am curious about how you look at just inflation and the stock market and bullish and bearish in that sense. What um, what are the key drivers that you see? Is it the interest rates? Is it the inflation that we're seeing? Can you just talk about the overall macro environment we have today? Yeah, I'll, 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 I'll take that a step further. Go to slide 18 in the deck. So I think the macro environment is pretty is, is pretty mute. It's pretty murky. Like each of the four regimes is reasonably probable at the current juncture as a function of where we are on this, like those time series for growth and inflation. They're starting to flatten out. And when you start to flatten out, it means the probability of going in one direction or the other is higher. Right. If you're just sloping upward or to the downside, you know, the probability that you go back up or, or back down and vice versa is much, much lower. So the reality is I think it's what's mostly about looking at asset markets through different lenses right now in terms of gleaning uh, forward-looking signals. So what I'm uh, showing on this chart here on the, on, the, on, on, on the chart on the left, the y-axis is showing the volatility risk premium. Don't worry about how we calculate it. That's not for this program. But the reality is the higher up on, this, on the y-axis you go, the more bearish people tend to be on that asset class. And the lower you on this on the y-axis you go, the more bullish people tend to be. And so what you're starting to see is that investors are getting really nervous about fixing common defensive assets through the lens of the options market, 
particularly relative to risk assets, U.S. equities, credit, things of that nature, um, even something like this S&P 500, obviously, you know, down there to the bottom right. That's they're effectively betting on what you're seeing in the chart on the right. The chart on the right is showing dispersion from a month over month sharp ratio basis. So that's kind of that's the volatility adjusted performance uh, for each of these sort of sectors and style factors There's 50 in the entire sample. What I'm showing here is the top 10 versus the bottom 10. And the composition of the top 10 versus the bottom 10 is really instructive in terms of spotting in real time what investors at these sort of big, massive hedge funds that you hear about, you'd Citadel and 0.72 and Millennium, you know, kind of the guys who pulling the strings behind the, behind the curtain. You know, those are the, that's, this is what they're either choosing to bet on or being forced to bet on as a function of the risk management systems at those, at those platforms. And so clearly the market is moving towards a reflationary bias. Now, I'd argue that it might be a little bit too soon as it relates to some of the catalysts we have between now and then on the economic front. And then on the op- operations expert front, we got uh, S&P OpEx this Friday, we got VIX OpEx next, next Friday. Um, so you might see some volatility in between now and then. But I would, gen- over a medium term basis, I tend to agree with what this chart is saying, is that, hey, look, we might see a bounce in growth post-Delta in terms of the peak economic impact of that. And if that doesn't drag up inflation too fast, if you get some you know, modest appreciation in inflation between now and then, you could actually have a very positive setup for risk in Q4. Um, you know, could you see S&P 500 up 4 or 5% you know, between now and the end of the year? I think that's a very reasonable probability. Could you see Bitcoin up by 50% between now and the end of the year? I think that's also a very reasonable probability. Darius, when you start thinking about uh, the questions you get from a lot of your clients, what are the most common concerns or uh, things that people are worried about right now? Yeah, I would say going uh, going back to a discussion we had earlier, what's the probability that inflation gets unhinged? Um, you know, we talk about this, you know, I think it's it's a much bigger issue in Europe right now. Um, you look at our European inflation curves, uh, I forget the chart, uh, don't, don't, don't quiz me on the chart number, but, you know, you look at our Europe, the European inflation curve, it's a lot less sanguine over the next few months um, with respect to kind of like getting through the next couple of months. And so you could see some upside surprises in inflation there. And from a headline risk perspective, that could actually catalyze some downside volatility and risk assets. Uh, obviously, the speed, in my opinion, of, of, of the appreciation we're seeing in, in that gas and crude oil, um, you know, things of that nature and, and going across, you know, really, the, it's starting to broaden out to different commodities as well. Like the speed of the appreciation will determine how how high and how much we can sort of appreciate, how, how much markets can appreciate all that net liquidity we're getting from the government. I mean, because that, that that fire hose or that, that that fire hydrant, if you will, is still very much on. You know, it's being it's we're, we're not being able to realize it as a function of some of these sort of kind of back to back to back OPEX dynamics. You also have, you know, earnings season kind of, you know, with bloodbath and beyond and Nike and FedEx kind of warrant, you know, kind of scaring investors. There's a lot of kind of tepid trepidation right now that is being priced in asset markets. But ultimately, we think that can get to uh, we, can, we can get past that as long as that big fire hose remains on, uh, at least for the next uh, quarter or two. Over the last 12 months, somebody's asking uh, in the comments, what's been the best producer in your portfolio? Has it been Bitcoin or something Bitcoin, else? Without question. No, I mean, without without question. Yeah, without question. And, and how do you look at inside of these asset classes, right? So if you think of crypto as an asset class, you've got certain uh, allocations that, that you described. When you look inside of like equities, how do you actually decide to allocate? Is this uh, index-based exposure? Or are you doing individual security selection? How do you think about that? Yeah. Great, great question. So going back to that slide 23, you know, right now we've, we were at least going back to um, uh, mid to late September, we made the active choice to start reducing our exposure to very specific uh, uh, sectors and style factors with the expectation that, hey, we might see a broadening uh, uh, base 
um, with respect to equity participation. So going back to from June to mid-September, equities were led to the upside by defensive sectors and style factors. That's like low beta, um, you know, uh, communication services, you know, big mega cap thing type names. All that stuff was dominating to the upside from basically mid-June to mid-September. Uh, and, and so we started to sell a lot of that stuff and said, hey, look, you know, we think this equity market rally could actually start to broaden out, whereas you, right, you start to pick up some leadership from things like cyclicals, uh, sectors and style factors. Uh, but right now, I think we're still in the process of, of investors getting out of that defensive stuff and into the cyclical stuff. And ultimately, when they're done with that rotational process, once the kind of the consensus market weight allocation is appropriate, then everything can start to recover at the same time. And that's kind of what we see uh, as the most likely probable scenario for Q4. Got it. What are you most looking forward to over the next 12 months? Any like milestones, anything specific in the uh, in the financial markets or from an investing perspective that you're like, you know, if this happened, that'd be pretty cool, whether it's the price of a single asset, whether it's a monetary fiscal policy decision, like what are you looking forward to? Yeah, uh, I don't know if it's something to look forward to because it's probably going to be negative. But to me, it's, it's when does the Treasury Department sort of authorize a big, you know, kind of debt binge, public debt binge, and, go and start to tap the markets really aggressively again. Because again, that's been one of the dynamics that's been very supportive for asset markets all year is the fact that the Treasury has not really issued a ton of debt. And then the function of the debt ceiling and kind of breaching that, or at least potentially breaching that, doesn't like they're going to, but, you know, they, they, they were kicking that can down the road again. And so to me, I think we're pushing that into the into Q1 or Q2 of next year when the net, when the, the Fed's balance sheet it's doing this, you know, it's going from exponential growth to logarithmic growth. And at the same time, the Treasury General Cow is going from going down to going up. When is that moment in time where that blue line going back to slide uh, slide 42, when does that blue line start to go down? Like to me, like that, that to me, oh, sorry, so slide 41 rather. When does that blue line start to go down? That's the biggest thing that's going to have to impact asset markets. Uh, yeah, this one right here. When does this blue line start to go down as a function of those two dynamics that I just highlighted? That to me is the next big catalyst on the on the on the horizon, and then the, the catalyst after that. Again, these aren't necessarily positive catalysts, but again, we just went from the freaking most historic recovery in stocks, credit, and crypto in history. Like every every year can't be like that, so let's not expect that to be the case. And the, the whole purpose of engaging with firms like mine is to understand when do these things, when do these wins change, and you have to do something different from the perspective of your portfolio. Uh, but again, going back to that second thing, it's it's. When do we when we get to the end of tapering, what is the in discussion on inflation like then? Because it'll be lower in, in, in terms of the level relative to where it is now. But if we're talking about different dynamics, then like wage inflation, seltzer inflation, things that very well could continue to be uh, accelerating, then then I think we're having a very different conversation about policy rate dynamics in the U.S. than we're currently anticipating uh, just in terms of the Fed's most recent guidance. My last question for you actually has nothing to do with the quantifiable metrics, uh, but I'm fascinated by this. Uh, John is uh, 25, and a lot of his friends we've talked about many times on the show before, uh, they're not allocating any money to any investment unless they think it's 10x or more. There's this element of uh, psychologically uh, people who have not seen those massive market drawdowns or any market drawdowns that they've experienced have quickly been supported by fiscal monetary policy and kind of shot right back up. Uh, It almost feels like um, they're perma bulls and there is very little understanding or worry of market risks, of safety of margin, all those types of things that I think are kind of timeless investing principles. And so how do you think that that plays into 
both the younger generations kind of continuing to enter into the financial market, but also those younger people end up actually uh, kind of growing their careers and end up in very important uh, capital allocation uh, positions. And so do you see that changing as well at some of the large hedge funds or, or asset allocators where younger people just have kind of a different risk reward uh, type framework? And, and now they're doing it not just with their own personal capital, but they're also doing it from a professional standpoint as well. Yeah, I see this all the time at the, at the professional level. Uh, you know, I'll use um, uh, there's a big mutual fund that everybody it, it, it is touched or is it touched by up in Boston? Um, you guys all know who it is. Um, I have discussions all the time with sort of the, the senior guys there that, that talk about whether, you know, like how if you made money and, and really got promoted in that in that shop, you know, over the last kind of, let's say, 10 years or so, it's because of the, uh, an unwillingness to adhere to traditional valuation metrics. You've been you've you had to effectively tune out valuation and the co concept of it and stay long, you know, rocket type charts, you know, particularly in the thing type space um, in order to outperform. And that's been something that's been a very much uh, demarcated by whether you're millennial versus a Gen X or a baby boomer. And so I think that general sort of sanguineness, that sanguine take towards risk asset markets is something that is shared by uh, younger generations. And I don't think that's going anywhere, if only because we're all products of the market environment we're born in. You know, people who I talk to are, you know, 50, 60, or not 50, 60, probably 60, 70 plus, or hyper concerned about inflation all the time. People I talk to 40 to 50, they're hyper concerned about the market getting cut in half all the time. And people I talk to are 35 and younger are hyper concerned about the next 10 bagger, right? It's just a function of the market environment you grow up in. And the reality is markets don't change. Like the people who are operating in markets change and their relative starting point and all the stuff that effectively trains them to, to, to deal and operate in financial markets, that changes. But the, how markets function don't really change, right? Greed and fear will always dominate financial markets. And the reality is, you know, just when, you know, the, the, the Joe's and it, just when that cohort at least expects uh, to be really punished by, you know, material long term drawdowns is when they're all going to get one. Right? Everyone learns how to lose money in financial markets. Like, I don't, there's no, there's no cohort of investors that is just perpetually rotating from the one 10 bagger to the next. Eventually you get, you know, you go from a 10 bagger to a zero. And you go from 10 bagger to a bunch of zeros, and eventually you realize that making money in financial markets is not easy. When we want to send people to find you on the internet, I'm going to put your uh, Twitter account here in uh, in the chat right now so people can follow it. Where else should we send them? Where can they find you uh, with 42 Macro? Yeah, I appreciate that, bro. Thank you. Uh, so I'm at uh, 42macro.com is our website. Uh, you can find me on Twitter. I'm a pretty prolific Twitter of charts and, and analysis. I'm at 42macro, D-Dale, D-D-A-L-E. Uh, come check us out. We appreciate you. I uh, I always enjoy talking to you. And if you're going to show up with charts that say the United States from a wealth inequality standpoint and unemployment standpoint is worse than Russia and China, uh, I think that kind of shocks people a little bit. Right. In, it is. In, it's true. In, in terms argue of math, bro. In, in, well, <laughs> there's a lot of people who are arguing with math. You know, Bitcoin is just math. And a lot of people argue with that. But uh, it doesn't mean that they're right. <laughs> Indeed, they won't be. <laughs> All right. Well, everyone who's watching, I highly, highly suggest you go check out Darius uh, on Twitter or go to 42macro.com as well. Joe, Johnny, last comments, thoughts from you geniuses? Now, a couple of people in the chat were asking uh, who could bench more, John or Darius, but uh, we'll, we'll leave that I, up to I, imagination I, for now. I, 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 right now, probably definitely you, John. 
42 macro. Go check it out. <laughs> so this guy, the guy behind me, peaked at 405. I think I did two, uh, 20, two, uh, 225, 25 times is my peak there. Um, so I John, that's your was, warm up. <laughs> there was a time where there was no contest, but I would, I'd probably give you the nod now. I mean, you got me by 10 years. I appreciate that. <laughs> Neither of us bench enough. That's <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's the right answer. Yeah. That's the right answer. I don't know how we started talking about benching, but of course, John is going to throw up a little flex for everyone before, uh, before we let you go. All right, Darius, listen, thanks for doing this, man. Appreciate you guys. Thank you so much. Man. Right, man. Bye, buddy.